Okay, welcome everyone to a very exciting episode of The Caring Instinct. We're joined by Basha Narvaez. She is the Professor Emerita of Psychology at the University of Notre Dame. Born in Minnesota, she grew up living around the world as a bilingual, bicultural, Puerto Rican, German-American, but calls Earth her home. Her earlier careers include professional musician, business owner, classroom music teacher, classroom Spanish teacher, and seminarian, among other things. In her academic career, she employs a lifespan interdisciplinary approach to studying evolved morality, child development and human flourishing, integrating anthropology, neuroscience, clinical, developmental, evolutionary and educational sciences. She hosts Evolve Nest and is president of Kindred World. The nine components of the Evolve Nest are number one, soothing perinatal experiences, two, on request breastfeeding, three, positive, in brackets, no negative moving touch, four, positive social climate, five, self-directed play, six, multiple allo mothers, seven, responsive relationships, eight, natural connection, and nine, healing practices. And she has numerous publications, uh, including a new book coming out called The Evolve Nest on August the 8th. Is that is that right? That's right. Welcome, Dasha. Thank you. Glad to be here. How are you doing? I'm good. Sun is shining. It's nice and warm. I like it warm because uh, I spent my first years in Puerto Rico, so my, my body's oriented to heat. <laughs> yeah. My wife is from Colombia. She lives here in London, and she misses the heat a lot. Yeah, it's a little chilly there. <laughs> yeah. And you've you've lived all over the world. Different places, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Half my childhood in Spanish-speaking countries, yeah, yeah, including Colombia, Bogota. Yeah, Bogota for one year. Yeah. Was that right? Yeah, great. Should we get into some questions? My favorite out of the nine components of the Evolve Nest, my personal favorite is self-directed play. Uh, very close to my heart. I, I thought I'd just share with you my own kind of journey through finding out more about play and then just get some of your comments, really. I started as a teacher, uh, but for the early years, it was called a play-based curriculum, but the play was always hidden, but you know, not hidden. There was hidden work or hidden jobs behind the play. It was it was to get somewhere or it was to help. It, it wasn't maybe what you might say true play. It was kind of a big selling point in the early years at the time. This was going back about 15 years and I always felt like there was just something kind of, I was drawn to it, but uh, seeing it in the school, that was there was something big missing in it for me. Uh, and then I found my way into play therapy, which I really loved. But then that felt really strange as well, because I was coming in for like, the sessions were like 50 minutes or an hour. And I mean, it was always work in itself, because you'd do that, you'd have the play therapy, and then you'd later, and then you'd be, if you were in a school, back into a sit down learning type, restricted environment I don't know it just felt strange to me and then I found alternative education and, and this word self-directed play where children just had time and play just something just emerged it hadn't been captured it felt like it was uh, as nature intended it that was about five years ago now and my children are five and three now and I just want as much self-directed play for them as I can but uh, could you tell us a bit about what self-directed play is for you? Sure. Let me just say the uh, list of Nest components are from our long history as nomadic foragers, and those kinds of societies still exist around the world. And 99% of our history was spent with these components. 
And yeah. it's for lifelong. Uh, all of us need to be nested, right? So play is not just for kids. It's for all of us. Uh, yeah, so all those components you mentioned, apart from soothing perinatal experience and breastfeeding, are for us, too, to maintain our humanity. They grow yeah. our humanity in early life, and then they maintain it as we uh, continue our lifespan. So self-directed play, that's something that uh, is then apparent in all ages, among all ages in our ancestral context. It's not a isolated, you know, from work. Work is play, uh, and it's all integrated. As you were saying, it seems artificial to have these one-hour play and then <laughs> go back to whatever rigid uh, schedule and activities you are in. So self-directed play means that adults are not in charge. The adults are not directing and coordinating and uh, you know creating a, some kind of structure. It's self-directed in that the child is following their impulses. And the reason that's so good is because it helps them not only develop self-confidence, but also self-control. When you play with others, especially, you've got to pay attention to your play partner. And Because if you're too aggressive, they're going to stop playing with you. So you have to learn to, you know, the nuances. And you have to be ready for unexpected moves by your playmate if you're wrestling or playing chase or some other I mean, this is a lot, uh, mostly whole body playing, what's called rough and tumble play. Uh, really important for the young children, especially when their brains are growing so rapidly. And you develop then skills for uh, stopping and starting activity. These are executive functions. You develop empathy for your partner because you have to figure out what, what they're feeling so that you, you know, aren't too rough. Uh, you have to um, be able to anticipate things. That's all executive function aspects. Uh, really important for lifelong health. Yeah. And we've really lost the value of play in our society in that most people associated with, just like you said, that hour, go out and play. It's like a break from work or something to fill time or an, a reward. The assumption is it's not, you're not really nothing's happening in it maybe it's just it's just a time filler so one of the things we really want to do at the current is to f help people find the value of play again how's that been like for you helping people to find the value because it's well, a hard one yeah i've uh, had multiple careers and one of my careers was a classroom music teacher and in that career i used folk song games for teaching and that means you play, you know, hunting we will go, hunting we will go, we'll catch a little fox and put him in a box and then we'll let him go. And you have to, you know, you're building the circle with partners and, the, and you're trying to not get caught if you're not one of the people in the circle. And what happens is you have to look at your, your classmates, you have to uh, sing, which is all good for vagus nerve uh, development, which is the 10th cranial nerve that innervates all the major systems of the body. Uh, you're touching, that's great for, you know, feeling comfortable with others. You're looking them in the eye, you're laughing. All this stuff is building your social intelligence. And uh, then in the music use of it, you break down the music and invent new songs with all the pieces of the music. But I use that uh, approach of folk song games with adult education when I was a student pastor. 
And then my college teaching with undergraduates, which I, I just retired in 2020, but we were using folk song games in order to help them get back into feeling connected to others. Because so many, and this is pre-pandemic, um, I retired right when the pandemic started. So what that does is it brings you back to the present moment. You have to be here and present with the other. That's what's so great about play. And play then is growing the right hemisphere, the right brain. A lot of what we do to young children is we undermine right brain development. We stress them out, oh, leaving them alone, leaving them to cry, spanking them. The, all those things misdirect development or underdevelop the right brain, which is social and emotional intelligence and linked to all sorts of self-regulation. So with the college students coming in, who they're depressed, they're anxious, play then is helping them find a way to relax into the present moment to be with others and build a sense of social joy. Because the other thing we do with young children is we isolate them so much, we put them in front of screens, they don't learn the give and take of getting along with others that you learn through play and is supposed to be learned in early childhood initially. But we can all grow our right brains through play throughout our lives. Yeah. You don't have to be a child to play. That's such a, a great way of helping people find the value because if you can find the value in it for yourself as adult, you know, as parents, as grandparents, that if you can see it for you, then you're much more likely to set up a culture or an environment where self-directed play happens. Sometimes it does just happen, but it's also the valued, you know, something's going on in that time. It doesn't come with that hidden message like this is just something to fill time. Yeah, so at evolvenest.org, we have different 28 days of practices to nudge people towards one thing or another. One yeah. is uh, eco-attachment dance to nudge them towards nature connection, which is another form, another place to play is with the natural world and feeling connected and safe there. I mean, we're just about to put up in the next weeks, I think, uh, 28 days of play so that you can learn to play on your own uh, in social play. So we'll have sing singular play and social play. You can play yeah. all day long by yourself. And, you know, just be silly and put on some music and dance or sing a song or, you know, say, uh, do silly things, like you know, well, for adults doing somersaults yeah, yeah. or dancing around. And you, so you can do that all the time. And then to do it with others, especially warm and fulfilling. Yeah. And it's an, an interesting one as well, because like you said, it kind of there's nine components, but play can kind of come into each one. Mm -hmm. It can go, go to so many places. That's right, because our yeah. relationships are really playful, uh, intended mm. to be playful, not so controlling. That's, you know, that's the left brain that likes control and likes to, you know, manipulate others and be detached, emotionally detached, relationally detached, and just, you know, make things happen with my yeah. model and my idea in my head. I'm going to make it happen in the world, right? That's left brain stuff. And we've, in the Western world, we've really emphasize that because we undermine normal development in childhood uh, and so then they're reliant on being um, kind of self-protective so the what I call the survival systems we're born with the fear system the rage system the panic system and these things get enhanced when you leave babies to cry leave them alone and don't have lots of face-to-face -face time and social enjoyment then they rely on that and then we send them to school and we tell them just to think, you know, and answer these questions. And then they go into the left brain function. And they don't have their all the right brain 
intelligences of how to get along and all the nonverbal ways of understanding who we are as human beings and, and growing and, and having confidence and, and not worrying about things. Uh, the right brain is able to, you know, emphasize relationships and, and is not afraid of death because it's all about transformation. <clears throat> Left brain is so scared of death, so scared of losing control, the big ego, you know, me, me, me. Uh, and we push then kids into survival systems, you know, being afraid, most of the easily triggered, especially in the states where we don't have parental leave and we don't provide all sorts of supports to families. And then they have, they use their little intellect about, oh, what's a good person? Well, this ideology I like, you know, uh, and it tells me that green people are dangerous. And so, oh, I'm going to go in my panic state when I see a green person. And you, you get very stiff-minded. You're, you're very scripted, which is the opposite of a playful life. Yeah. Play can, can help you get out of that. That's right. Yeah. Yes, it, it can, can regrow your capacities to be flexible and attuned to others and relaxed in the moment. Yeah. I love how you talk about learning in play, the empathy, um, getting along, because uh, at least here in England, we're very worried and we try to control children's play. We try to control our child so that they don't hurt other children. Be nice, play nice, share, oh, no, no hands, no touching, be gentle. What do you think? Maybe we need to let go a little bit. And let them find their rough and tumble. Yes, in nomadic foraging communities, when you're two years old, you don't have a lot of empathy yet. You're still developing your sensibilities and such. Uh, and you're more oriented to having a strong choice and autonomy, uh, agency, we call it. Uh, so you want to do the things because you're, you're just oriented to learning and you just want to go and do this and then that and then that. And what we, in the nomadic foraging communities, our ancestral context, uh, they understand this and they just re respond with play. So if the two-year-old's coming at you with a stick, you know, they don't know how it hurts if you, they hit you or whatever. So you just, you know, respond with play and redirect and things like that. Whereas in the civ so-called civilized, Western civilized world, you punish the child. Oh, what are you doing? No. And you, or you keep saying, no, no, no. You are now undermining their motivation for self-development, for learning. You're, you're making them afraid. You're putting them into their survival systems. And when that takes over your mind, you're not going to be flexible and attuned and very open-hearted, open-minded. It's just the opposite direction for our human nature. What I see happening there is it's almost like we jump into a, a teacher role. Oh, it's happening at two years old. Oh, you know, what could be happening when you're five? What could be, when you're 15, I've got to teach this that we treat things like they're skills knowledge just to be passed on like very simply don't don't hit but it actually emerges in in a far more complex and natural way yeah so that's the left brain again thinking you yeah. have to manipulate and force people so a lot of coercion in the western civilization uh because that's what is assumed that the there's not not goodness in the child mm. there's not a sense already of a moral, what I call a moral compass of guiding their development. If you leave them on their own and, and support them in all the nested ways, they're going to grow into a good person because you've treated them with empathy. You've uh, responded to their needs without leaving them in, in distress. You've been there all the time. You've maintained that sense of connectedness to 
that you as a caregiver, you as a member of the community, and then to the natural world. You haven't broken that continuum, as uh, Jean Leeloff talks about in her uh, book, The Continuum Concept. Uh, and so instead then, breaking all that, you are maintaining a sense of well-being throughout life. And the child isn't going to go into that mode of of us against them, of controlling others, because they have developed an integrated brain instead, which we adults, many of the adults in charge of the world do not seem to have or do not apply it when it comes to children. So yeah. what is it in us? Do you think that we don't believe in human nature in children? Is it Freud? Is it our own lack of evolved it's, nest? It's, uh, yeah, it's our own experience matters. So we were, when you're left alone as a baby, uh, punished or in distress, you know, the mom says, oh, I love you, but then leaves you to cry in your crib and sleep alone. That's not the message deep down is I'm not important. I can't trust my needs. I can't trust people. I can't trust the world, right? But it goes way back to uh, patriarchy, essentially. Patriarchal civilization has undermined uh, child raising by forcing people into work and labor and and mother's mono agriculture. Everyone had to get in the fields and work. And so you left the babies behind. You let them cry. You hung them up on a tree and let them cry or whatever and wrapped them up so they were... Uh, in shock from swaddling. So we have a long history of that. And then the religion, uh, Christian religion, has uh, different aspects of not the uh, blessing and the mystical part of Christianity, but the institutional part of Christianity has emphasized original sin. Original sin is, you know, we're all tainted and you're born that way. And, oh, you got to force children. You have to spank them into being good which only means obedience to whatever the adult wants, right? It's not really goodness. So there's a whole twisted mess of things that have got, gotten us to this place. And part of it is the adults forgot how to raise children. They forgot what the human potential is. They're not self-aware either because it's too painful to remember how awful your childhood was. You just have a big blank and idealize, you know, what the good, the good child is. And you're guided by, again, that left brain idea of, of something that's not true. Yeah. And I know uh, Gabor Mate has this, I don't know if you've seen this, the happy childhood challenge, or I think he calls it experience. Oh, where he I gets, haven't seen it. He asks people to come up on stage. He say they've had a, a happy childhood. It takes him a minute or two to get to something like what you've talked about of you know this is not how we're meant to this is not how we're meant to be raised or this is not how we're meant to what we're meant to grow up on yeah how did the evolved nest unfold for you was this always obvious to you uh, tell us about the evolution of the evolved nest for you sure uh well my earliest memory as a child is of um a child being unjustly treated yeah uh and then living in uh, countries where children my age were on the street corners selling gum to make uh, enough money for food. I mean, and then coming back to the States where there's too much materialism and, and waste, uh, I just could not understand what was wrong with the world. So I've always had a concern about children and ethics. Uh, but I had a bunch of other interests. So I was a music major in college and did different things and had different careers. I got my PhD in moral development because I wanted to figure out what was wrong, right? And that 
was initially the the field is still mostly focused on reasoning and thinking left brain stuff you know oh make a good decision and then make yourself do it you know and that's you know being good and <laughs> being moral uh and it became quite unsatisfactory i i read widely and i discover the anthropologists uh, summarizing hunter-gatherer childhoods around the world and one of them said hmm and, and many of the components of the evolved nest were mentioned and they said hmm this has been around for millions of years uh, 30 million years as social mammals uh, we've been around for two two million or so depending on how you're uh, labeling everything they said maybe it matters you know <laughs> maybe it matters for something and then I read Alan Shore and the neurobiology of early life and how the parenting and constructs your brain because in graduate school they did they talked about attachment but they always made it sound like a cognitive thing you have this little model and you apply it to your relationships based on what you experienced no your brain is engraved it's shaped by how your parents treated you your caregivers treated you and then i discovered uh you know our mammalian nature yak pancept and our how our mammal systems we share with all mammals are shaped also again by early life and how different systems can take over your mind so Paul McLean's try and brain theory. So I developed a try and ethics theory um, saying that neurobiology is going to lead you to um, certain mindsets. Uh, and if you don't have the proper things grown, right, brain especially, you're not going to be able to be relationally attuned to others. You're going to easily go into threat reactivity, shifts the blood flow away from your higher order thinking and being open. Uh, to bracing against life and that's what you know we're creating with our undercare and so I um, then found that those components I decided I had to study them <laughs> and so we started developing measures and uh, collecting data and such on it but um, it's an uphill slog because uh, the people in charge of the Western civilization they think whatever they did was great because they're successful right and so they have minimal interest in meeting the needs of children other than teaching them to read and to be achievers. <laughs> the left brain stuff again, right? <laughs> so they think that's how you are become human. So it's all kind of uh, messed up. People don't know. And so my, my goal is to try to open up uh, the imagination. I have a new movie coming out called Reimagining Humanity. So that is trying to get to an awareness that humanity doesn't have to be the way we are so self-centered and aggressive and violent and me 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 and us against them that's not our heritage we are much more cooperative creatures that's what our ancestors displayed and and was our greatest um, feature is that cooperation with others including strangers and including the natural world can you tell us more about that cooperation because it feels like if you ask the average member of of the public you know what were we like in past years people would uh, stereotypically say maybe we you know we would be killing each other or competing against each other it's survival of the fittest you know you have to be stronger than the next person yeah tell us more about the cooperation if you can yeah that's that's part of the myth of civilization to say oh look how great we are aren't we haven't we progressed you have to collapse all sorts of uh, information from the past uh, and um, and that's what people do uh, in their books where they say we were violent but they're 
you know, there's different types of societies. Nomadic foragers is, is the basic level and pretty much all animals are nomadic foragers. Uh, and then you have, uh, once you start to have hierarchy, uh, or there might be a tribe, so then you have certain rules about that. Then you have chiefdoms, and then, well, there's complex hunter-gatherers in there too. They raise maybe uh, crops uh, or have a domesticated animal. So nomadic foragers, no domesticated animals, no crops are raised, hardly any possessions because it's very inconvenient. And so there's nothing to fight about, and that's 95% of our history in that kind of society but the yeah. people who write about us, about us being violent, they collapse all those other, the inequality, the hierarchical systems uh, of groups and societies, data from those, and they collapse it all together and they cite, they pick, cherry pick those violent ones and say, look how we were, and look at all, blah, blah, aren't we great? No, not so much. <laughs> yeah. Do you suspect that's coming from that left brain kind of reactive survival system way of thinking or...? Yes, and patriarchy. So it's the ideology that men are superior and white males in particular and European society in particular are the progress. And we've really made it the earth a great place because we've got so much technology. So it's blinded to the fact that we're destroying the planet. We've pretty much undermined every ecological system on the planet. We're, we've lost, what, half the species on the planet in the last 50 years. Insects are disappearing. If they disappear, the pollinators, we go too. It's just blindness, and the left brain is very good at this. It's very optimistic, and that's one of its characteristics. When you freeze or uh, numb one side or the other or the, of the brain, you see what the characteristics are like. And then left brain is also where anger is. So you can see in the estates, a lot of angry people and they know what's right and they're going to force it down your throat, right? That's, that's where we are because we've undermined early childhood development, in my view, and we've done it for a long time. And you can, from your uh, parents and grandparents, inherit epigenetic effects, meaning your genes are affected by their experiences uh, and you get more anxious so we've, we've got trauma that's been passed on generation to generation uh, from the wiping out of the Europans, the early people in Europe by the Roman Empire, for example, and all the slavery that uh, the Romans and civilizations um, proposed and practiced. Uh, it's just an endless, horrible, <laughs> and now it's been globalized, right, with colonization and other uh, capitalism is just the nth degree of this terrible path we're on. I call it a trauma-inducing pathway that we've yeah. been on for a while, and we need to get back to the wellness-informed pathway, which starts with the evolved nest. This nature connection, I've been absolutely blown away by this part in your book, Restoring Kinship. I feel really justified because here uh, I'm the crazy plant lady, but... Maybe I'm right about something. Maybe that's the way to be, and that's not the crazy way, you know. So I was, I was, yeah. I really enjoyed listening to the book and gardening, worshiping my little plants, and <laughs> hoping they won't be so little soon, and really feeling, really feeling as one with them. And my question is: so I've got a seven-year-old son, and every now and then he will say. Mom, let's not eat chicken, let's not eat lamb, let's not eat animals, because we need to protect animals, because we care about animals, because they're living creatures. And there's nothing I can say. At the same time, 
it's very hard for a child to be vegetarian for a child who doesn't eat beans or tofu. And also, I understand that everything's connected and to create tofu, those soybean plantations, you know, they eradicated a lot of the wildlife areas that everything's connected even though obviously animal farming is the worst but there is an answer isn't there i felt like there is an answer when listening to your book restoring kinship and in feeling the clo- a closer connection with animals in finding gratitude for them could you talk about this please how is it done by the indigenous communities what could be the way out here because also i think as our eco consciousness hopefully rises in many of us we feel like we can't own our space our children our teenagers get horrible anxiety because you can't continue living the way we are living here in the west and not feel like the earth would be better off without us well for the, in terms of eating animals the plants are alive too uh so to every creature has to eat other creatures to stay alive that's the way it goes and so it's the manner in which you do it uh do you ask permission this is what the indigenous first nation peoples would do especially native americans asking permission of the plants asking permission of the animals ha- having respectful ways of treating uh them you know there's a whole set of uh the honorable harvest i talk about i think in the in the book and that's for plants but there's various practices depends on the group what exactly the practices are but there's just a general a sense of partnership with animals and plants and i think we can bring that into our lives too and that's when we we talk to you know and and thank the animal thank the plants that are uh, part of our meal and try to of course purchase uh plants and animals or grow them ourselves but purchase things that have been done uh in respectful ways i guess that's made fun of in a in a show a tv show called portlandia where the person in the restaurant asks well what was the name of this this the, the animal from whom the my steak is coming and was he treated well you know all that kind of thing they made fun of that but in a way we need to do that we have to have a sense that everything we do is having an effect on the web of life and are we doing it in a respectful way are we just taking only as much as we need not wasting anything not um dishonoring it that way but having a sense that we are reliant on these lives for our own life and to be grateful for that you know i have it from the book it was talking about connecting with with plants uh and flowers and to spit there was i think it was um an exercise to go out and talk to them and see if they talk back to you and so i, I was think cutting... maybe you're talking about the sit spot maybe the Remind sit spot us. is where you go to the same place uh and sit there for 5 to what however minute 5 minutes or longer uh and then notice the changes and open your senses to what is there uh your ear your sound listening to the sounds and sights and smells and feels uh and you start to get more and more comfortable and John Young is the one who promotes this uh all over the world 
And he says he sees people's personalities change. They become more yeah. open, less rigid. A wonderful practice. And and I was cutting my lawn because uh, I've just moved in somewhere. Where I have some like a garden for the first time. And um, it just so happened I was listening to the part of because I was listening on Audible and it said inviting you to talk to the plants, talk to the flowers. So uh, and I think there was part where it says, you know, when you're destroying or cutting them down, you know, ask them if they want to be cut down or not or permission, asking for permission, I think. And so I was uh, go cutting the grass and there was some clumps of like daisies and buttercups. And I asked, uh, I asked them if they want to be, uh, if it's okay to cut them down or, and some of them, they said, it's okay, you can. And then there was this little part where they said, no, uh, don't cut us down. So I kind of circled around it and kept it. And that was like two weeks ago and now it's grown. And then, you know, every time I see it, there's, you come back to that place so you can really feel the connection just a tiny tiny thing but it's it i it, it, it's made a big difference yeah oh that's yeah. great yeah yeah we we uh practice no mo may do you know that yeah we do too practice yeah okay yeah. and i i you know i want my husband really to not cut our backyard at all because uh when i was out there a few weeks ago and that was in May, I noticed there were dozens of bumblebees all mm. over uh, the plants. It's like, oh, my God, we are a, har a habitat. We are a sanctuary for the insects. We live in a suburban-like area, and most of the lawns are just grass. And we have yeah. multi, mul not a monoculture. Uh, and you don't see very many insects on these other lawns, but we have a whole, whole bunch. And so I don't want him to cut it at all. <laughs> we are responsible. This is our place on earth to be good stewards, you know. So anyway, we go back and forth. <laughs> back and forth be between cutting it and not cutting it. Yes. Be well, yeah. he wants to because he has yeah. this, uh, I'm sorry, British Empire ideal. <laughs> Yeah. green flat you know that's being a good husband a good neighbor a good whatever uh person to have that look so nice and uniform and i'm saying yeah. no no think of all the millions of of our brothers and sister insects out there yeah and plants so that that to me is perfection versus play we want perfection. Mm. We want a perfect British lawn. But that is an infertile space versus a mm -hmm. space where na nature can play in all its flowers, in all its insects that we don't even know the names of, in all the soil microbiology. And plays, plays always comes out as the answer. If it's happening in your garden as well, then you can, re you know, you can really take up a relationship with it because mm. you yeah. see it every day or you mm. go into it every, well, in the summer, at least here, not so much the winter. <clears throat> I really love the, um, the emphasis you put on the developing heart wisdom and our mission statement here, the best starts with the best parenting book is your and your child's heart. <laughs> and beautiful. Then, and when I saw that an emphasis on heart, when it's, it's almost like if you had to pick one thing, uh, I probably would go for play, but also the the heart would be there as a, a close fight because so much can come from that getting out of our minds, getting out of our heads, into our heart, 
into that place. I mean, personally as well, you know, I'm a therapist as well. I can find myself, I can spend a lot of time there, but I can also come out, I'm into my, you know, I'm out of my heart very quickly. You can lose it really quickly as well. So it really takes time to cultivate and to really kind of live there for a long time or, 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 or be able to go there quickly. So yeah, I'll just invite you to share more about the your take on, on heart wisdom and cultivating a relationship with it. Yeah, I, I use the term heart mind after mm. others. So it's thinking with your connected feelings, right? So it's your sense of being tuned into the whole unity of, of everything, of the cosmos, and then following the intuitions that come from that. Uh, we undermine the development in, in the Western civilization, but in native communities, it's just natural part of growing up because you're allowing the child to follow their heart wisdom from the beginning and you are tuning in and you're helping them tune into it. So it's an ongoing empathic collaboration or partnership in developing that full human potential so that when they get to adolescence and adulthood, they're ready to be, you know, fully there instead of being scared, instead of being worried, instead of feeling unconfident. You've allowed them to develop their full heart wisdom and, and it continues throughout life, I think. There's different stages. The different Elders have a different sense. They're, they have a bigger, broader uh, view of the world, more synthesis of things and uh, keep the memories alive of, of what works <clears throat> and what's best for the community. What's your own play, Dasha? I write songs and poems, and uh, my husband and I play pretty much every day. We, we're silly with each other, and we'll dance around, or we'll um, try to make each other laugh uh, in a good way, you know, uh, and, and do that every day. And being outside and interacting with uh, the insects uh, or the plants, trying to support their play, right, is part of my play. Beautiful. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, you're Thank welcome. you so much for your work. Yeah. We're looking Thank forward you. to your new book, The Evolved Nest and Reimagining Humans, Reimagining Humanity. Yes, Reimagining, Reimagining Humanity. Thank you Thank so you. much, Dash. <laughs>